I see where we're at today, this current global pandemic, I see it as a wonderful opportunity to see the sovereignty and the goodness and the great plan of God come to fruition in and through our lives. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Good morning, Shoreliners, and happy Palm Sunday to you. Welcome to Shoreline Online. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and it is such an honor and a privilege to be with you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn or swipe to Isaiah chapter 11. As we begin our time this morning, life is filled with the unexpected. Won't you agree with that? Sometimes we think we know what's coming, but in actuality, we really don't. In 1962, the Decca Recording Company said, we don't like their sound. In fact, guitar music is probably on its way out. Who were they speaking about? They were speaking about the Beatles. In 1982 or 1981, Bill Gates apparently said this. He said, 640K of storage ought to be enough for anybody. And nowadays, I think 640K is smaller than the average photo that you take as you're doing a selfie. Did you guys know that Lord Kelvin famously said in 1895, he said this, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. (laughs) Now, obviously, these uh, different people were completely and embarrassingly wrong. And yet they thought that they knew what was coming and they were making predictions in a world of uncertainty. And don't you find yourself with me in kind of that same boat today? We are in a world right now of complete uncertainty. This exact moment in human history, you and I find ourselves watching a video from a screen in our living room. And we're going, that's not something I ever saw coming three months ago or three weeks ago. Uh, Sheltering in place and spending the month of April 2020 as if the earth itself is completely closed. I think they said half of the entire world is in lockdown. And so these are uncertain times, and we certainly didn't see this coming. And yet today, as we open the scriptures, we conclude our David series. We're going to be looking at the arrival of the Messiah. And to do that, we're going to look at three different passages of scripture together. And what we're going to see, why this connects to us, is that we are going to see that Messiah almost always seems to arrive at a moment where the despair and the need and the uncertainty is at its highest where uh, he comes both in humility and yet also in triumph. And he comes when we least expect him. And so before we dive into today's teaching, I want us to just kind of pan back over the last few weeks and months as we've been studying First and Second Samuel. And we've been looking at the life of David through the lens of Christ. We started the series looking at Saul, the king that kind of predated or the predecessor of David. And we saw that Saul was not a man after God's own heart. In fact, he was filled with pride and God eventually raised up David. We saw uh, David anointed by Samuel and chosen as the youngest and most overlooked son of Jesse. We learned about David's triumph over Goliath and how he defeated the impossible foe. 
We listened thereafter to the words of a popular song that began to make its way around Israel about how David had killed his tens of thousands. And this song incited jealousy within the king to really seek after David's life. We saw how Saul, his son Jonathan, uh, built this relationship with David and how he made a covenant with him and offered royal friendship uh, to someone who didn't deserve it. We then heard the song of lament as David cried out in agony over the death, not only of Jonathan, his good friend, but Jonathan's father, Saul, and how he, David, honored both of them. We learned of David's undeserved kindness thereafter to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And we studied David's desire to then want to build God a house. I just desire to build this house for God. And yet God was going to build a house out of David, a dynasty that would never come to an end. And that would be fully realized in his offspring. And then last week, of course, we read David's last words as he described a future king who was going to rule in righteousness. And so all throughout this study, we have seen that David is a type of Christ and he's a glorious type of Christ. And then we've kind of seen where we are in the story, that we're not David necessarily, that we're someone else in the story. And so today we conclude this series with a look at the reign of Christ ahead and how Jesus is not only the son of David, he's also the root of Jesse. And so to do this, we're going to read three passages of scripture. I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. So let's begin our time by looking at uh, the first 10 verses. And as we do this, I want you to note the five things that, uh, that jumped out at me about his reign, about the Messiah's reign, five things that we note. And each one of these begins with the letter E, just to make it easy for you. And so what we're going to read here is a powerful description of a coming kingdom. And many scholars believe that this is a depiction of the millennial reign of Christ. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about that, about when the millennium or the millennial reign is going to be. Is it going to take place right after the second coming of Christ, which is after the rapture, uh, which is before the great tribulation? Or will it be ushered in before the second coming of Christ? So in Revelation, there seems to be a description of a time of a thousand years. Now, some people believe that that's not a literal thousand years, but just a symbolic. There are some people like me who consider themselves pre-millennial, that Christ will come before the millennium. But then there are some who are what's called post-millennial. Uh, there are even some who are called amillennial. Now, this concept of eschatology, of the study of end things, is a secondary issue. In other words, this is not a salvific issue. We can disagree and dialogue about this as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet not wonder if the person who disagrees with us on that point is not going to heaven, right? We know that in all of eternity, we're going to have some banter as we josh each other back and forth and kind of say, you know, I was right all along and your view was wrong. But either way, no matter where you land in your eschatology and your study of end things, we can all agree that the rule and reign of Christ will have much of the marks that are described here in Isaiah chapter 11. Now, I mentioned there are five aspects of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They each begin with an E. Let's look at verse one in the first one, which is his estate. Look at verse one with me. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
Now notice with me that this ruler is known as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That seems a little bit random until you rewind back one chapter. So if you have your Bibles, just glance up one verse or two verses above chapter 11. If you have your Bible app, just swipe left. Notice what verses 33 and 34 describe. It says in verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great and height will be honed down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So what this is describing is the Assyrians who would come and cut down the people of Israel. This would be a great judgment against the house of Israel. And yet, even though many of the trees would be cut into stumps, out of the house of Jesse would arise this small little shoot that would eventually bear fruit. And so this chapter 11 is an absolute reference to the line of David and the coming Messiah who would be the shoot or the branch who bears fruit in Israel. Now, up until the time that Christ came, Israel's house and David's house had lain dormant for around 600 years before Jesus came on the scene. One scholar said it this way. He said, we see a bare, withered tree stump robbed of its trunk and top. And it looks as though the stump will never bear any fruit anymore. But a small shoot sprouts from the root of this dry stump, which is the Davidic dynasty. Because of its unsightliness and misery, it is not named after David, but after his father. When Christ was born, there was nothing royal about that dynasty, but a new shoot sprang from this old stem. So this future reign will have a ruler who comes from the line of David and from Jesse, his father. That's his estate. But secondly, let's look now at his empowerment. Verse two, it says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, note with me that there are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit referenced here in verse two. Did you catch that? The number seven is often referred to as the number of perfection, as the number of completion in the scripture. So you note here with me that first of all, he is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Jehovah. In other words, he's not a false, deceptive spirit. It's not anyone else. This is the spirit of the Lord, not a counterfeit. But secondly, notice that he's the spirit of wisdom. So the Messiah would be empowered with the spirit of God and bring wisdom, not just that the Messiah would offer wisdom to his people, but as 1 Corinthians 1.30 declares, Jesus is himself wisdom. So it's not just that he has wisdom, he himself is wisdom. He embodies wisdom. The third aspect, if you notice, is understanding. He'd have the spirit of understanding. Now in Hebrew, when you use this phrase understanding, it actually referred kind of the way that we referred to a strong sense of smell. To have understanding was to have great discernment, to be able to sniff out hypocrisy, so to speak, to know if someone was true or not. And so the Messiah would have discernment. He'd be able to truly understand what was in a man. And we see that described of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Note the fourth aspect. The Messiah would be empowered by the spirit of counsel. The Holy Spirit is our counselor and gives us direction when we need answers. And so thankfully, the Messiah would be empowered with good counsel. But not only that, the fifth dynamic, notice with me, is might. And that simply means the power to carry out 
what he intends to do. He's, he has all the might and the power uh, to fulfill what he desires to do. Well, the sixth aspect is knowledge, which ultimately means that he has all the facts. He is never making a decision where he's misinformed or uninformed. Uh, he knows all things. He has all the information. He has all knowledge. And then finally, the seventh is that he has the fear of the Lord. And so the Messiah would come empowered by the Holy Spirit to operate in submission and in deference to the Father. Now, these seven things so wonderfully, so powerfully describe Jesus, our Messiah, who was truly God and yet was truly man. And truly man, he was a man empowered by the Holy Spirit who rested upon him. And so his empowerment it doesn't come from within, it comes from without, from the Spirit of the Lord. Well, number three, notice his equity. Let's look at verses three through five. It says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So we talked last week in 2 Samuel chapter 23, how the coming king would rule in righteousness, and that he would not rule sinfully. He is an absolute fair ruler in his judgments. But even though he's fair, by no means does he allow the guilty to go free without punishment. He doesn't wink at wrongdoing. He doesn't have corruption. He's not corruptible. And so this Messiah will strike down the wicked, yet he'll be an equitable ruler who delights in the fear of the Lord. Now, just think for a minute how that way of ruling stands in such stark contrast to the way that men and women have ruled in government throughout time. We have had tyranny We've had oppression throughout all of human history. We've seen rulers with partiality, which essentially means that they judge by appearances and they're, they're, they're ultimately swayed by popular opinion or by political pressure. They're partial. We've seen that rulers throughout time are unjust, meaning they'll let the guilty go free or they'll take bribes or they'll have an, a selfish perspective or a, a personal interest in uh, a case. We've seen the rulers throughout time have judged with immorality. Maybe there is corruption uh, within their heart or they were covering up an impropriety or covering up crime. And yet we need not fear these three things with our Messiah. When we look at Jesus, we realize the Messiah will be impartial. He'll be, he'll be righteous. He'll be just. And note with me that both the poor and the meek will benefit from his reign. Those are usually the two uh, groups of people that are most marginalized and easy to take advantage of with corrupt leadership, the, the meek and the poor. And yet those two will be protected and looked out for by the equity of this benevolent ruler. This is going to be an incredible, fair and righteous rule. And it's going to be one that human life, as we learned last week, will flourish under. Well, then we come to verse six and an often misquoted verse. Okay, this verse, verse six, does not say that the lion shall lay down with the lamb. Many people incorrectly quote that in many other scriptures. But I want us to notice verses six through nine and the Messiah's ecology. Look at it with me. 
Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now this future reign of Messiah will actually impact creation itself. We know that one of the results of the fall was that sin entered the world and thus death entered the world through sin. In fact, the ground itself became cursed. Prior to the fall, that wasn't the case. So God had created everything good, and that meant no disease, no sickness, no death, no predators. Before the fall, animals were fully subjected to mankind, and thus there weren't uh, this. There wasn't this fear that your kindergartner would be harmed by going and petting the lion. Uh, there wouldn't be this fear that your granddaughter would get too close to a venomous snake. But now because of the fall, because we have death, because we have a food, uh, because of that, we have a food chain. We have predators, we have prey. And, and according to this verse, this is going to be different, a different order of, of creation. So today, cows and bears don't generally hang out together. Uh, lions don't want to sit and eat straw. They want to eat antelope. But notice here in this text that the day that Messiah comes, he'll reverse the curse. And he'll bring us back to the beauty of Eden. All creation will be restored, including in verse 9, which says that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just picture that day when all people know the Lord. And, and that word knowledge doesn't just mean information. It means intimacy. It means that people will know the Lord, that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth just like the massive oceans blanket the seafloor. Just picture that day where all peoples will come to know Jesus as Lord. This is a glimpse ahead of his glorious kingdom. And verse 10 gives us this fifth aspect to the Messiah's reign. And that's his empire. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This Messiah, notice that he's referred to here as the root of Jesse. He will raise up a signal. Another translation says a banner. And the nations will then seek after him. This speaks of the diversity of his people. All the nations will come and inquire of him. Not just the Jews, not just Americans, not just one nation or people, but the entire world, the peoples of the world. And notice this phrase, that his resting place shall be glorious. The resting place of God has always been the sanctuary in the temple of Jerusalem where the ark of God and Jehovah rested. But we know from scripture that now the church is the glorious resting place where God's spirit dwells and you and I embody the glory of God in all the earth. How on earth can Isaiah chapter 11, that phrase, the root of Jesse, how on earth can that be describing David? Remember, Isaiah is writing this in the 7th century BC. That's 300 or so years after last week when we saw the last words of David. There's no way this could be describing David. This is after David had died. 
And so this is saying that Jesse's lineage soon will seem to be cut off and come to an end. And yet out of that despairing moment, a shoot will rise up out of the root of Jesse. And one day when the people least expect it, Messiah will enter into Jerusalem. But we know this as we celebrate Palm Sunday. In his first advent, Jesus didn't come to set up this rule and reign. He first came to put an end to sin. And that's where we now turn our attention to Matthew chapter 21. So turn there with me, Matthew chapter 21. This is what many scholars and even most of your headings call the triumphal entry. But what we'll see is it's not quite as triumphal as many of the Roman parades that would take place. And yet it's a triumph because it's the arrival of Messiah. Look at verse one with me of Matthew 21. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now to catch you up to speed, this is the moment that Jesus, right before the cross, leads his disciples into the city of Jerusalem. This is at the Passover feast. And so uh, what has essentially happened is for the last three years, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee and Judea. And now this is the time, this is the hour for the Son of Man to offer his life for the sin of the world. And so as they're walking into Jerusalem, there's a huge throng of uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are gathered there, congregated there for the Passover celebration. Not only that, but the law in Exodus 12 would require you as a family to have your sacrificial lamb living with you prior to the Passover for about three days. And so just picture this. Not only are there hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, but now interspersed in the crowd, there are tens of thousands of lambs clustered in with the people. And they're all gathered here for the Passover, not anticipating a spiritual or religious awakening. No, the people are wanting a political revolution. In a minute, we'll see that they hold up palm branches. And ever since the Maccabean revolution, just a few years prior, this idea of the palm branch became the symbol of nationalism. Much like uh, in communist countries, the red star hammer and sickle, or in Nazi Germany, the swastika was used. And so right outside the city of Jerusalem, within a short distance were these twin cities. And so Jesus instructs two of his disciples, hey, go into the city and right away you'll find a donkey with her, with her colt tied up with her. And so just untie them and bring them here to me. And if anyone stops you, just say, hey, the Lord needs them. Well, it sounds a little bit fishy, right? Like, yeah, the Lord needs them, you're good. Now, some people speculate Jesus went before them and set that up earlier the day before or that morning. And I just don't see that from the text. This is a description, I believe, of the fact that even though we go into uncertainty, God is still working all things for good. He's still ordaining it. Just consider for a minute God's ordaining work even in the midst of uncertainty. The disciples here have no idea what to expect in the next few moments, yet in their uncertainty, God had already ordained this. And so Jesus instructs his disciples to obey him word for word. And as they do, they see that everything that he said is fulfilled exactly as he said it. And so the arrival of Messiah into Jerusalem here in this exact moment was not haphazard. It was ordained. 
Look at verse 4. It says that it not only was it ordained, but it was predicted. Verse 4 says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Notice here the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 is being quoted, and Jesus perfectly fulfills this description of Zion's coming king. But notice he's not a pompous king. He's not an arrogant king. Here he rides into Jerusalem, not on a mighty horse or a chariot, but a lowly, unridden donkey. Some scholars have noted that in times of war, the king would ride the horse. And at times of peace, he would ride the donkey. No matter how you cut it, the Messiah, as promised, has come in humility. He's come in gentleness and he's come in love. Remember, this is the Messiah's first advent and he's coming again. And in his second advent, he'll be trading in the donkey for the war horse. Believe me. Now, notice the triumphant aspect of verses 8 through 11. It says in verse 8, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. And here's what they shouted. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, notice the response of the people. They lay their cloaks on the ground before him. They cut palm branches and wave them and set them down. They cry out these different songs of prayer and worship. And they go before him preparing the way. Just picture this moment of worship. And as they're crying out, Hosanna, uh, some of us don't understand what that means. And so the word Hosanna literally means save now. Originally, this phrase was found in Psalm 118.25. And right after the word Hosanna, it would always be linked to the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The idea behind the original meaning of Hosanna was that it was more of a desperate cry, as if you were drowning and, and you were just saying, help someone, please save me now. But it began to change over time. And so the meaning of the word kind of developed. Uh, we know that words change their meaning. So the word gentleman used to mean a particular type of man. But now when we say gentleman, we're just saying, hey, he's polite. He opens the door for his grandma. What a gentleman. Well, the word Hosanna changed by the time Jesus came on the scene. And so it shifted from a desperate help type prayer to if you're drowning now and you see the person coming to save you, the lifesaver is coming to you. The lifeguard is swimming up to you. You would say, Hosanna. You would say, I'm saved. In other words, the person who came to save me is now here. And that's the way these people are using it. And when they say Hosanna in the highest, what they're saying is, hey, all of heaven, the angels are joining in with this great pronouncement. Now, the people were chanting this phrase, not with the concept that he was coming to save them from their sins. They wanted a political Messiah, not a spiritual one. They wanted Caesar to be overthrown, not sin. They didn't understand that Jesus was not coming to be a political king. He was coming to be a servant savior. The crowd here doesn't want salvation in a spiritual sense. They want salvation in a geopolitical sense. 
They want Jesus to overthrow Rome. They want a leader who's going to crush oppression and liberate them as a nation. And yet Hosanna being lifted up is not necessarily a worship song here. It's a national anthem. And when they say the son of David, they're referring to his rule as Messiah, but they want him to be king of Israel to kick out Caesar ruling from Italy. But we know this. Jesus wasn't entering Jerusalem at that time to set up what we've read about in 2 Samuel 23 and Isaiah 11. He wasn't setting up a military kingdom, but a spiritual one. This wasn't a coup that would put an end to Rome. This was a spiritual sacrifice that would, that would put an end to Passover. Luke fills in some insight in Luke 19, where he says the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, the Pharisees hear Jesus' disciples beginning to worship him. And so they are thinking blasphemy. And so they say, hey, you need to stop them from uh, seeing and declaring you as the Messiah. And Jesus said, if I stop their mouths, then just some other part of creation is going to join in the applause. Notice in verse 10, the entire city of millions of people is stirred up. And what are they asking? They're asking, who has just arrived? Who is this? And the crowds respond with, to me, this is kind of a fail. They say, well, this is Jesus, the prophet. He's from Nazareth. I kind of see that as a missed opportunity here. In other words, hey, we're crying out for God to save us. And here's the one. Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. His name is Yeshua, the God who saves. Here he is. He came from heaven to earth. This is Jesus, our promised Messiah. <laughs> but they don't say that, do they? They say, oh, yeah, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Kind of a missed opportunity. But notice that Jesus is called by them the son of David. He is the promised Messiah. He came in his first advent here to seek and save that which was lost, to put an end to sin, to bear the wrath of God and to ransom a people for his name. He is the root of Jesse that grew out of the stump, who came humbly, who came unexpectedly, and yet was ordained at just the right time. According to Galatians 4.4, 4, at the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a virgin. And so this arrival into Jerusalem to bear our sin as we celebrate that this week, what we call Holy Week, and then as we look ahead at Good Friday and, of course, Resurrection Sunday, we see what Jesus ultimately did in his first advent. But there's another time in Scripture where the Messiah seems to arrive unexpectedly. And that's in Revelation chapter 5. So turn there with me to the book of Revelation. And let's look at this final idea, the root of David. Revelation chapter 5 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one is worthy. Just let that sink in for a minute. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. And this realization 
that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This caused John, the apostle of love, to just begin to weep. We, we've lost. There, there's no final redemption, no consummation of the kingdom. Our final glorification cannot be realized now because there simply is no one worthy to open the scroll. But then we come to verse five. It says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, in other words, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Did you catch the seven spirits of God that are described here? Maybe a throwback to Isaiah chapter 11. But notice with me that the elder here says, weep no more. John, there's someone worthy. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the root of David. He was formerly known as the root of Jesse. But after his first advent, now he's known as the root of David. He is the son of David. He's the offspring that we've been reading about uh, throughout our study. He's the one who would sit on the throne of David perpetually, his kingdom never coming to an end. The house of David built by God and sustained by Messiah for all time. He is conquered. And yet, though he's known as the root of David and the lion, notice that he's also described here as a lamb. A lamb who had been slain. Verse 8 says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth wow this new song that will be sung is a song about the lamb the lamb who is worthy because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people from every nation from every tribe from every people group from every tongue and he took those people and he transformed them into a kingdom and into priests who will reign with the Messiah. And so the root of David will come again one day in his second advent, and he will come not to give his life as a ransom, but with his ransom people, he will come to conquer and to rule. And this second coming that we anticipate, that we look forward to, that maybe for the first time in your life, you begin to realize could happen at any moment. This coming kingdom is ordained, it's not only ordained, it's victorious. And it's not only victorious, it's possible because he alone is worthy. Now to apply what we've been studying today, we can apply these texts in three different ways. And so if you're taking note, here's how I would frame it. I would frame it this way. In light of the coming of Messiah, number one, the work of God on earth is resolved. Church, it's settled. It's, it's ordained. You can't struggle against the work of God. You can't thwart the work of God. Is there anything in or anyone in creation that could possibly foil the great plan of God? 
R.C. Sproul famously said, if there's one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then he is not God. You see, what looks bleak and without hope and filled with uncertainty is actually a wonderful opportunity for God to get glory as he intervenes and works his plan for our good. Just think about Israel throughout time. Here's Israel uh, just being attacked by the Assyrians and all but wiped away the 10 northern tribes. And you can imagine the people going, uh-oh, God's plan isn't coming to pass. And then years later, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken away captive to Babylon. Uh-oh, I thought God had all of his plan worked out. Obviously, he didn't see that one coming. And then all of the stumps, uh, the trees are cut into stumps. Uh-oh. I guess the, the reign of Messiah that was supposed to be perpetual has come to an end. God didn't, didn't know that was going to happen. And then as Rome comes in and begins to occupy Judea, uh-oh, I mean, how's this going to work out for good? Now we've got Caesar ruling from afar. I guess God's plan has been thwarted. And yet in all of those circumstances, there were moments where God was just about to do something marvelous. And yet the people didn't see it coming. It wasn't that God wasn't in control. It's that the people were not trusting that his plan would be fulfilled. And so in this global moment that you and I find ourselves in today, we could be tempted to do the same thing. We could be tempted to look around and say, uh-oh, I thought God was in control. What is happening in the world today? Lord, this is uncertain. Are you still God? And yet all great awakenings happen when there's prior to the awakening or the renewal or the localized work of God in a very significant way by his spirit, prior to that, there's almost always a season of biblical illiteracy among the people. There's almost always rampant sin and culture, and there's almost always an apathetic and anemic church. And yet when God begins to work in a very special way, he brings about renewal in the hearts of his people. I see where we're at today, this current global pandemic. I see it as a wonderful opportunity to see the sovereignty and the goodness and the great plan of God come to fruition in and through our lives. I know God's plans are resolved and they'll come to pass. And that allows me to rest in his finished work and to know that he's going to work all of this for the good of those who love him. How exciting that is. Well, secondly, in light of the coming of the Messiah, number two, the worth of God calls us to respond. Because of the plight and despair in this fallen earth, you and I can say with full confidence as Christ followers that there is one who saves, that there is one who is worthy. And in light of his goodness, we see our utter sinfulness. In light of his capability to save, we realize our insufficiency to save. In fact, we see our own unworthiness in light of his worth. And so church, have you been like those people in Jerusalem who weren't fully understanding who they were worshiping or maybe wanting something from him instead of wanting to offer their lives to him? In fact, what does your worship look like since this whole pandemic has not allowed us to meet corporately with the gathering? How has your worship looked? You might say, well, that's a weird question. Well, of course, you know that worship is not just the music portion at the beginning or end of our gatherings, you know that worship is a life surrendered to bringing glory and worth and weight to a great God. And so in light of the worth of Christ, how has your life reflected his glory, his worth, his fullness, and his goodness? 
one of my favorite composers, Johann Sebastian Bach, would scribble three letters at the bottom of every one of his compositions. And it wasn't cryptic. It was the letters SDG, which stood for the Latin phrase sole dea gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. What Bach was saying is, yes, I'm going to write with precision. I'm going to write with skill. I'm going to write with absolute excellence. And yet, at the end of this, I don't want you to applaud Bach. I want all the attention and all the praise to go to God alone. Bach was saying, my, my music can glorify the Lord. And church, did you know your lips can glorify Christ? That your marriage, your parenting, the time that you're spending right now, the stewardship over your home and your body and your health and your rest and the time and thoughts that you're kind of meditating on, all of that can be used to glorify God, to bring greater weight to our great God and Savior. And so in light of the coming of Messiah, let's be reminded that our worship is to be responsive and say, he alone can save and he alone is worthy. Now, thirdly, in light of the coming of Messiah, number three, the witness of God is a ransomed people. In Revelation, we read about a group of people who overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, the testimony of God has already come in two ways. It's come from his own word and it's come from his son. And that's enough. That's sufficient as two witnesses to testify of who God is. And yet, throughout the annals of time, we have billions upon billions upon billions of people ransomed out of every nation, tribe, and tongue who also testify of the truth and the love of God. And so we're told here that we represent the king we're a kingdom and we're priests. We represent God to the people. My favorite phrase these days is that you and I are the fellowship of the blood bought. And so in light of his ordained, triumphant, and soon returned church, may we be found advancing the gospel and that we would find more and more people who need ransoming. Now, as we close, we've learned throughout this study that Jesus is the true and better David. And Jesus, as we study today, is the root of Jesse, he's the son of David, and he's the root of David. Now, as we look at Palm Sunday, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem to redeem. But church, you and I know this, that today we reflect that he's not only entered Jerusalem, but he's entered our hearts by faith, by his spirit, he's made us new. He has saved us. He's come in the name of the Lord. And so in the midst of fear, and uncertainty and a time of confusion, you and I as his followers can trust that God is still and always at work. I read this week about two explorers who were on a jungle safari and suddenly they found themselves in front of a hungry, ferocious lion. And they immediately froze and the first explorer looked over quietly whispering to his companion and he said, stay calm. We read the book. The book says, stare into the eyes of the lion and eventually he'll get afraid and run. Well, his companion whispered back and said, yeah, that's great. You've read the book. I've read the book, but has the lion, <laughs> has the lion read the book? Now you and I are probably not facing uh, the reality of a lion in front of us. In fact, most of us are typically struck down and paralyzed by the fear of what could happen, by the fear of the unknown. And yet, no matter what we're facing, you and I can have absolute assurance that God's plans will come to pass, that God is at work in each one of our lives. We can trust he's worthy of our worship and he's strong to save. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. And as the Psalms say, he is one who promises to hide us in the shelter of his wings. 
So church, until he comes again in his second coming, may we be found working, may we be found worshiping, may we be found witnessing of his great grace given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. John Calvin said, we must hunger after Christ until the dawning of that great day when our Lord will fully manifest the glory of his kingdom. Lord, that's our prayer this morning that we would hunger, Lord, after Jesus Christ until you return. Help us to be about your business, to be advancing this kingdom. Lord, as we go into Holy Week, we realize there's a great opportunity to invite people to watch, to tune in, to learn about the living hope, the unshaken hope that we have because of the finished work of Christ at Calvary and because of his conquering of sin and death in his resurrection from the dead. So Lord, as we go into this week, we anticipate you to continue working greatly in our lives and through our lives. So Lord, until you come again, may we be found doing your work, advancing the kingdom and representing you to the people. We love you, Lord, and we commit this week to you and we ask for strength. We ask for peace over panic and we trust that you are faithful to save. You're mighty to save. And so we surrender to the one who alone is worthy. It's in Christ's name that all God's people from wherever you are together agreed and said, amen. Amen. Hey, we love you guys. We miss you. Continue to um, stay tuned to our Facebook page and to thisisshoreline.com. We'll continue to give you an elder update every Friday through the digital bulletin. But listen, have a safe and blessed week. We'll see you next Sunday at Easter. We're also going to have a special time on Good Friday, so stay tuned for that. But hey, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift up your countenance and be gracious to you and bring you peace over panic. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.